So welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton planning committee. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. For best results, I recommend that you watch today's presentation in speaker view. And now it is my pleasure to reintroduce you to our distinguished speaker, Lynn Sabo. Lynn is Professor Emerita of English Literature at Trinity Western University in Vancouver, Canada. She has been a Merton reader and scholar since the early 1990s. Her writings have focused on silence and contemplation as foundational to Christian spiritual formation. And her specialty is the poetry of Thomas Merton. She edited the first comprehensive edition of Thomas Merton's poetry, a book called In the Dark Before Dawn, published by New Directions in 2005. Lynn has served as the vice president of the International Thomas Merton Society and as a member of its board of directors. She is a founding member of the board of the Thomas Merton Society of Canada, whose most active chapter is in Vancouver. Lynn suffered a catastrophic accident in 2015, which transformed her into what she calls a wheelchair navigator. She began to learn about life in a wheelchair in the very season in which she had retired. She describes this experience as an unexpected retirement plan, as well as a journey into the mercy within mercy within mercy mm -hmm. that she has lived by since that she has lived by since she was a child. Mercy has also been the foundational theme of the many retreats she has led over the years at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, at Merton's birthplace in Prades, France, and in many other places she would never have thought to go, all courtesy of her self-promise never to turn an invitation down on Merton's behalf once she had experienced the joy of his posthumous presence in her inner life. And now it is my pleasure to present to you Professor Lynn Sabo speaking on Poetry as Spiritual Direction with Thomas Merton and Denise Levertov. Lynn. Thank you very much, Teresa. Uh, when Teresa and I were making the plans for this evening, uh, she asked if I would have a prayer to open uh, the presentation with, and of course I do. Uh, those of you who've made retreats at uh, Gethsemane know that this prayer is often on prayer cards that you can pick up from public places there. But I, I will read it for us tonight. I don't think there's any way we can absorb more than one line at a time, but that's often the case with Merton's poetry and his prose. It's called Litany of the Person. Image of God, born of God's breath. Vessel of divine love, after his likeness. Dwelling of God, capacity for the infinite. Eternally known, chosen of God. Home of the infinite majesty, abiding in the sun called from eternity, life in the Lord, temple of the Holy Spirit, branch of Christ, receptacle of the Most High, 
wellspring of living water, heir of the kingdom, the glory of God, abode of the Trinity, God sings this litany eternally in his word. This is who you are. Amen. As some of you know, uh, I have been um, engaged in a rather uh, a serious set of complications this past year, uh, post the accident that I had. And so I am speaking to you from my uh, bed office. Uh, it's in my home hospital and uh, in the work from home movement. I don't know if I have a lot of uh, uh, co-partners in this design uh, uh, for uh, COVID work from home syndrome, but that's where I am. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I do apologize for the quality of my voice. Uh, one of the side effects of some medications that I'm needing to take is that it makes a hoarse voice. Um, I think it would be preferable to have it that way uh, from whiskey and cigarettes, but I haven't tried those things, or maybe uh, some of that good Kentucky bur bourbon. Nonetheless, uh, I am here and I'm delighted to know that you're there. And I know many of you are saying prayers of support to me and I lean on those right at this moment. Uh, before I begin, I want to say that I'd like to dedicate my presentation to Jonathan Montaldo, a kindred soul, an abiding friend, and a Mertonian who has been a Merton, mentor in Merton ways and helped me to find some of my best ideas. Um, I think that's where I better stop. There have been many wonderful adventures of all sorts, uh, especially uh, co-hosting the Scholars Retreat at Gethsemane Abbey and uh, hauling ice packs up to the Hermitage because uh, the day was so hot, everybody was suffering dehydration. Well, that's one of them. Uh, I'd like to open the presentation by reading a poem, uh, lines from it actually, that Denise Levertov wrote when she read Merton, and it's called On a Theme by Thomas Merton, uh, a very um, typical courtesy that poets often offer each other. Fragmented Adam stares, God's hands unseen, the whirling rides dazzle, the lights blind him. Fragmented, he is not present to himself. God suffers the void that is his presence. My first encounter with Denise Levertov was in person. It was in May 1992, the weekend of the Rodney King race riots that had, had exploded in Los Angeles and spilled up the coast to Seattle, that I came into the presence of her sacred spirit. I was giving my first paper after returning to the academy after a patchwork work of career and geographical moves. 
In fact, on that particular trip, a very dear friend of mine came with me uh, in order to offer moral support and perhaps to ensure that I had an auditor of at least one person. That first evening of the Christianity and Literature Conference, I attended a poetry reading at which Ms. Levertov was to read from selected works. Evening Train had not yet been published, but I do remember her reading new poems, so I'm imagining that we might have heard some from the collection that would appear in April of 1993 in the volume published by New Directions. I realized that the evening's guest must be the solitary figure sitting at the end of the front row of wooden college seats. Alone and preoccupied with the sheaf of poems in a manila file folder, she was quietly and arranging, carefully arranging her white sheets. Her pale face, unremarkable ensemble and thin frame were surely decoys to me, a pert professional university professor who had at one time sought mostly the pleasantly bourgeois life that had been denied my refugee family with roots in Tsarist Russia. Indeed, once introduced, Levertov's poetry and voice confirmed again the seismic shift in my sens sensibilities, which had already begun in its reshaping of my life into that of a contemplative pilgrim. Regrettably, my two forays in graduate school, more than 20 years apart, had both left Levertov at the margins not as much as making an appearance in the American literature courses, which I had studied was her lot. Looking back, I see that along with Thomas Merton and many other religiously associated poets in America, her vehemently expressed political views and her eventual confirmation and practice of Catholic orthodoxy were largely the cause. Not much has changed in the revision the of the canon that has come to be the near singular obsession of uh, English departments in North America in these times of post-modernity, the era of ethical dilemma and the millennial forces. The possibilities for my recognition of the sacredness of the person and the sacrament that is poetry had been well grounded in the few years previous to my encounter with Levertov. On returning to graduate studies and a teaching assistantship at U the University of B British Columbia in the early 90s, I had been introduced to the poetry of Thomas Merton on December 10th uncannily so as it was the anniversary of his death. Uh, but according to my daybook, my office mate had looked over at me after hearing me sigh once again about the seminar I was taking on Virginia Woolf and how it had been utterly colonized with endless discussions about literary theory 
parading as philosophy. Follow me, she said, and I did, thinking that we were headed to the student union building for a cup of tea in the dreariness of the December rains. Instead, we trooped over to the old main library. To the left of its front doors, housed in the reference section, sat the collection of MLA bibliographies, Modern Languages Association bibliographies, year by year. My friend marched straight over and took the 1988 volume from the shelf. Opening it to the entries on Thomas Merton, she advised me to take a look and consider asking Dr. Ross Labrie, a professor in the English department, to conduct a directed study with me on Merton. Anything to escape the theory wars in the spring semester, I thought. After checking out almost the entire collections of Mer collection of Merton's writing, I went home to begin the Christmas break. I couldn't have possibly imagined the implication of that day's stormy trek. While my family cross-country skied their way through the holidays, I settled into a chair in the ski lodge, and over the next week, I underwent a cosmic redefinition of my personhood. More life-altering than any reading of Christian apologetics, the unsettling and narrowly unsatisfying tradition in which my faith had been formed, I found a language of intimate spirituality in the sign of Jonas, the seven-story mountain, and the poetry of this radical poet monk. I resonated with the manner of extremes that had shaped his life so different from my own. Free in the social order, I was a woman who felt oppressed in her church and home. I glimpsed aspects of myself that longed to depart from my constraining traditions, to open myself and my intellect to a sacramental life and imagination that transcended endless debates of eschatology, hermeneutics, interpretation, and worse yet, their failed application to the spiritual and intellectual vacuum that my suburban life had become. I saw that I too had been made in the image of God, but was, quote, living instead in fear and hopeless self-contradictory hungers, end quote. By the end of that week at Manning Park, I realized that I was a sacramentalist. What a shock to my radical Anabaptist roots that had been in place for more than half my life. That for me was the moment when I realized everything was sacred in its origins and meaning that there was no worldly life. Everything existed in the power of a hidden wholeness created by God in the pleasure of wisdom, incarnated by Christ and inspired by the breath of the spirit. Deep in my own personhood, I needed liturgy and mystery 
the means of grace beyond eternal salvation and my weak attempts to create spiritual direction in my family. That ski lodge became my cathedral and my travel home with my family became the beginning of a pilgrimage that continues to this day. I made a vow or election that I would be a relentless pilgrim in search of my spiritual identity in life and in literature. Never again would the gifts that defined my relationship to God be subsumed in role relations ascribed to me by the social order of so-called secularism. I told no one about the tectonic shift in the architecture of my personhood, but I knew that my life had begun to change forever. Merton had left behind his life as a secular person when he departed his life in New York City for Gethsemane Abbey in 1941, never to leave its order and hierarchy, even though he seemed to question doing so nearly every day as is portrayed in his journals. I too would eventually leave my own secular world and along with it, the religious heritages of my father and my husband which must, with much less drama, but rather with much more angst and sadness than had Thomas Merton. My life as a suburban housewife who, quote, worked outside the home, end quote, would be exchanged for the acceptance, affirmation, and absorption of the life of the mind and the spirit by religion and vocation. Those who loved me were to be tested in ways we could not imagine, as my spiritual orientation changed at the most fundamental place in my being, and was eventually found to be incompatible with the patriarchal rep repression that I had been trying to live in. Like the Cistercians, whom Merton had joined, but on completely different terms, my life's decisions would be made in the knowledge that no human relationship or endeavor would prevent me from co the commitment made by every monk that passed through the gates of Gethsemane, where it was proclaimed on the lintel of its doors, God alone. All else in my life would find its orbit in response to this gravitas that was God's mercy in the world. Since that time, my commitment has only deepened. Denise Levertov's words from the poem, The Necessity, written in 1960, were the very theopoesis of my then newfound understanding of life and literature. Each, and I quote, each part of speech, a spark awaiting redemption. Each, a virtue a power in abeyance unless we give it care, our need designs in us. Then all we have let then all we have led away returns to us. More than a decade later, in the Greenwich Village office of the New Directions Publishing Company, the seismic energy changes that had taken place in my life since that Christmas vacation of 1990 
along with the intersections of Thomas Merton and Denise Levertov in my life, would remap themselves. While my two delighted adult daughters perused the endless wonders of the Strand bookstore several blocks away, I sat discussing the possibilities of editing a new selection of Thomas Merton's poetry under the principal editor of New Directions, Peggy Fox, who was carrying forward the legacy that James Laughlin, Merton's college friend, had started as an avant-garde press decades earlier. Merton and Levertov are two of the lesser poets housed in New Directions Publishing, but they are among they are there amongst the pantheon of literati in America and far beyond, including Ezra Pound, Tennessee Williams, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Henry James, James Joyce, Franz Kafka, Pablo Neruda, Ursula Le Guin, and an enormous galaxy of writers who have influenced Western culture over the last century. As I followed Peggy through the hallways and offices stacked with books, she selected one and gave it to me as a remembrance of this special day. The book was their very recently published Selected Poems of Denise Levertov, 2003. Moments later, Peggy pointed to a framed quotation on the wall attributed to Merton. Do you know where that's from, she queried in passing. None of us seems to know. I could place those words. I felt, no doubt immodestly, the satisfying familiarity with Merton's poetry that seemed appropriate to the contract I had recently signed. As with the many joyful and revealing epiphanies of my reframed life, Levertov and Merton were at hand. Their art and faith, part of the chorus of those who had mentored me in life and poetry as I wound my way along the pilgrim's path. The womanly life of Denise Levertov has offered me a poetics of the feminine and even the feminist, although that was not her MO. I, as I have read some of the, of the recent very fine biographies of her life, I see why her poetry has affirmed the capacious intellect and intelligence, the wit, the charm, the rebel, and the utterly utter incarnationality that was the foundation of the re-identification of self that became her life. Her words have often give my, given my life a language in similar events in our lives. The death of a beloved sister, a failed marriage, the foreboding territory of maternal love and its inevitabilities. I laugh with resonance when I read her A Woman Alone with its accounts of, and these are quotes, dinners at midnight, half of her bed covered in books, and no one, quote, kept awake by the reading light, the phone disconnected, allowing her to, quote, sleep till noon. Such are the delicious moments of the single life, counterweighted, of course, by the utter responsibility that one has for one's own survival, happiness, and spiritual direction, along with that of one's offerings 
offspring. More significant for me, though, has been Levertov's Theopoetics, the portraiture and architecture of her search and love for God and his presence in all things. I resonate with the power, profound and precious religious tutelage given her by her father and her aesthetic formation embedded by her mother. Both laid the tracings for her path to faith, but the way, like her poetry, would be one in which art and faith would wrestle their way to consummation. More significant for me, though, has been Levertov's Theopoetics, the portraiture and architecture of her search and love for God and his presence in all things I resonate with. The profound and precious religious tutelage given to her by her father and the aesthetic formation embedded in her by her mother. Both laid the tracings for her path to faith, but the way, like her poetry, would be one in which art and faith would wrestle their way to consummation, assisted by angels, in the way that the painfully beautiful poem, The Jacob's Ladder, paints for us. It is not astonishing at all even though her readers, critics, and friends found it dismayingly so, that her assumption of faith came through her writing of poetry. Indeed, by the means of such hard-earned hard theopoetics, we find that at the age of 57, while writing the long poem, Mass for the Day of St. Didym Thomas Didymus, she experienced her first sense of the unknown as a God who had become helpless for our sake. And eventually she was led at age 67 to communion in the Catholic Church. Her faith had been apprehended at the price of a life that had been filled not only with the wonders of her art, but with the sadnesses, conflicts, self-centered mistakes and sins that had caused suffering to her and those who loved her. Just as with all of us who are fortunate enough not to be so gifted as she, not so courageous and driven to be known, and not so misfortunate to have them all examined and recorded in the public eye. In the way of life encounters and intersections, Levertov had visited Thomas Merton at Gethsemane Abbey. In many ways, her quote, double image, his transatlantic heritage and consciousness brought to America after brief residences and wanderings in Europe, an old world intellectual and aesthetic formation and spiritual influences from Anglican contexts. Merton, like Levertov, had been led by biography and history to an unexpected determination to become a Roman Catholic against all odds. But it was their shared and radical resistance to the Vietnam War that led Levertov to visit Merton at Gethsemane Abbey on December 10th, 1967, exactly one year to the day before his accidental death by electrocution outside of Bangkok, Thailand. Merton had been an early admirer of Levertov's poetry 
Hollenberg recounts that, quote, in response to receiving a copy of With Eyes at the Back of Our Heads, 1959, Merton had written to James Laughlin that Levertov was one of the few contemporary poets with whom he was in complete understanding and agreement. The photographer Eugene Meachard, a friend of Burton's in Louisville, came along for the visit, taking pictures of the event now held in the Poets' Trusts. With fees too, for rights too prohibitive to permit sharing in, in an evening like this, I urge you to simply Google them and see it online. Their meeting was recorded by both of them. Merton finding that he responded to her very much as a poet and a person. She having left him a draft of her anti-war poem, Tenebrae, recounted the meeting as focusing on the war and nothing religious since quote, she had no religious commitment at the time. Merton and Levertov were kindred passions, radical searchers for authenticity and influence in a world gone wild with war. Merton's continuing influence on Levertov is evidenced by her poem of 1991, which I read uh, portions uh, at the beginning of this talk. Their mutual love for and guidance by Sister Mary Lou Tobin, Superior General of the Sisters of Loretto, whose mother house is only miles down the road from Gethsemane, was integral to their lives as human beings of deep and unrelenting spiritual awareness. Levertov had been drawn to Sister Mary Lou by her views on the Vietnam War and her activism in speaking all over the states about it. This had led Levertov to make retreats with Sister Mary Lou in Denver, where she was earlier headquartered. Merton had become acquainted with this renowned sister at Loretto when she had located there and he went over to Loretto on Sunday afternoons or mornings to say mass. Even in her 90s, Sister Mary Luke was the precocious prophet of America, the only American female religious observer at Vatican II. She lived in its light and continued to interrogate her church until the end of her life. And I just want to say two things here. Uh, Bonnie Thurston has written uh, about Merton and Levertov in a, in a fascinating and lovely way. And then I also wanted to say that while I was in Kentucky, I attended uh, the offices in the church and Sister Mary Luke, who um, really was immobile, she could, she could pace with a walker. At the end of the offices, she would stand up and she would do her liturgical dance. And it was just as though her body came alive. Uh, she had apparently had had uh, dance training when she was young and had combined it with her religious uh, practice. When I was conducting research on one of my many trips to Kentucky, I stayed at Loretto for three weeks. Sister Mary Luke was by then living in the care home that was part of the foundation there. She graciously received me and granted me an interview 
full of stories of her encounters with Merton and their shared attempt at influencing the outcomes for women in the church in the new encyclicals of Vatican II. Regrettably, I neglected to include Levertov in our visit, unaware of the significance of their friendship. And I have a lovely photo of the two of us. Uh, it, it was a wonderful afternoon, and I remember how she told me that uh, Merton would come over and how he was so open-minded that when uh, the holy water was missing uh, from the mass, he simply shook the branches above him and dew fell into his palm. And with that, he was able to continue. It was so lovely. Throughout the almost three decades in which he was immersed in the natural world in the environs of Our Lady of Gethsemane Abbey, Thomas Merton powerfully and compellingly recorded the discoveries and mysteries in his embrace of all creation. His massive poetic corpus is fertile soil from which to mine his theology of nature and its hermeneutics. I will say that the, the rest of the paper, which isn't much longer now, uh, I tend to become a little more technical as is the case with everyone in their industry. So please don't feel alienated by it. It's just that I express my ideas as an academic um, and you've all had conversance with that in some way or another. Merton's realization of and his commitment to the unity of all creation is at the heart of his aesthetics, a cosmology in which the sacredness of the natural world illuminates Merton's own sacredness and God's wisdom in nature articulates his wisdom in Merton. The contemplative recognition of this unity arouses in Merton the vision of, quote, a new world that converges towards peace, end quote. Deeply influenced by Jacques Maritain's aesthetics, Merton adopted the view that poetry transcends art, that it induces conformity with being or beingness, that is, our own essence. For Merton, the natural world became the symbology from which his poet's mystical imagination induced the beauty of divine revelation. That beauty is claritas, seeing into God's glory. This symbology is not only illustrative, it is iconic, even anagogic, the essence of meaning and transformation. From his early to his late poems, Burton's quote, paradise ear, listening for paradise, engages this method and dynamic. All nature is infused with the will of God, which humankind must learn from through contemplation and the mystic's wisdom. As one deconstructs the evolution of Merton's poetics, and their theological framework, one is enthralled by the power of the whirling dervish of contemplation, mysticism, and ontological commitment that rages through his recognition of the silent springs, quote, of the created world, from whose well he draws deeply 
and courageously, however apocalyptic their revelations. Bread in the Wilderness, one of his books, elaborates the process that Merton engages in the mysticism which traces his poetics in one of his seminal literary essays entitled Poetry, Symbolism, and Typology, Merton posits that, quote, we see ourselves reflected in the pain of nature, P-A-N-E, as a window, which has given to us a clean window. Although he subsequently explains that the fall of Adam and its story has rendered that window opaque, he clearly affirms that it is the poet who captures a way of knowing that sets apart in words experience that cannot otherwise be rendered. And that allows its participants to penetrate the paradisial sanctity and wisdom of God in the wisdom of nature to see through the glass darkly. The ontological moment of poetry is created by the Spirit of God, who is, quote, at the same time, the poet, the poetry, and the reader of the poetry, the music, and the musician, the singer, and the hearer, end quote. In such a paradigm, poetry becomes incarnational and consequentially redemptive in its power. Poetry becomes the ontology of a new world order in which the poet beckons all people, quote, to come out and wonder. In retrospect, one is allured by these mystical dynamics portrayed in Merton's poems from his earliest to his last, even when one regards the simultaneous and astounding variations in their metrics, metaphor, and metabolism. He offers his readers a vast panorama of his poets' discoveries and their profound mystical dimensions. The largesse of the incarnational impulse continually depicts its transcendence of history, mythology, and anthropology. In this context, Merton's poetics again portray not a return to Eden, but the recognition of the reality that in God, all things are unified, made whole, and restored. But most important is that in this vision, it is the poet's, quote, pen between his fingers, end quote, who transcribes the songs that, quote, make the water world sing. The incarnated sweet Christ is present to, quote, discover diamonds and sapphires in the poet's verse. One hears here the resonance of the beautiful epigraph of the Firewatch essay, one of the, what Jacques Maritain called the best essay in spiritual writing in the 20th century. Firewatch, July 4th, 1952. And I quote, 
Adam and Eve come out and walk along the coast, praising the tears of the sun, while the poet is decorating with Christ's rubies the bones of the autumn trees, the bones of the homecoming world. Have you ever heard autumn described in this way, I ask you? This mystical intensity of the poet's engagement of this world is recreated in the prophetic rendering of Mark Merton's desert, ex desert experience in Elias' Variations on a Theme, which has been richly and impeccably studied by scholar Patrick O'Connell, written after Merton's nearly decades-long, decade-long self-silencing of his poetic voice that was between 1949 and 1957. Uh, he uh, got it in his head, probably from the, the uh, ethos in which he was living, that poetry uh, was not suitable, uh, reading poetry was not suitable when you're supposed to be studying the scripture and being a monk. I don't know if any of you grew up looking at the arts that way, but um, Radical Protestantism and its architecture gives you a good idea. Uh, in the microcosm of the monk prophet's desert, under the blunt pine in the winter sun, the pathway dies and the wilds begin. This reminds us, us of Jesus in the desert in the 40 days before he begins his ministry. In his aloneness, the seed has life waiting, quote, to grow and bear fruit. In contrast to the silent springs of that season's rhythms, the poet has been, quote, a man without silence. Perhaps this, you feel that this describes you or someone you know. A man or person without silence, a man or person without patience, with too many questions. End quote. Learning from nature's wisdom, the poet embraces the freedom of the bird who, quote, abides and sings alone. I do have to say that this last year I so enjoyed listening to bird song, both in the hospital and in care, just the joy of each morning. Learning from nature's wisdom, the poet embraces the freedom of the bird. Yes, and says, I am my own wild bird with God in the center. I own, I own the wild field, which nobody owns. I have my own pattern surrounding the spirit by which I myself am surrounded. If you're a long distance runner or cyclist, I think you would identify with these words even if there's no theology attached. The synthesis of Merton's ability to imagine and pronounce the wisdom, which is a hidden wholeness, quote, the mysterious unity and integrity, which is the mother of all, has been hard won in Merton's unflinching engagement of all that was a part of the disgusting century, as he called it, of which he had become a citizen. And even so, an American citizen. His poetics ongoingly demonstrate 
his refusal to defeat his social conscience by his chosen marginalization as a monastic religious. He so perspicaciously and convincingly critiques his own culture and society that he is eventually publicly silenced by his censors. Merton's subsequent shift to the anti-poetics of the Latin American literary rebels indicates even more fully his penetrating insights into the debasement of language that has accompanied what he considers to be the degradation of American society by the prejudices of race, class, religion, and politics. And that was long before social media. But what makes Merton's poetry so captivating at this particular period is its call to the variety of tempers and temperaments that take the stage in his portrayal of the drama unfolding around him. These words could be written today, this afternoon. His paradise ear listens and reports to his poetic vision all that it records records allowing him to orchestrate his symphony in all its tones and themes. His penultimate antipoem, Cables to the Ace, announces that Merton's poetics are, quote, on vacation. The poet, however, continues to transmit cables to a reader. No prologue or introduction is needed. These cables, and I think of them as, uh, as Wi-Fi, as not even Wi-Fi, as the internet uh, cables that are now being left behind in the dust, um, that roll uh, messages into us by the second. And if you don't answer in two or three minutes, you're already way behind the curve in email these days. Um, and I say that somewhat lamentably. These cables, made musical if played and sung by all armed societies doomed to an electric war, produce a heavy, imperturbable beat. No indication where to stop, no messages to decode. We all learn a new kind of obstinacy, together with massive lessons of irony and refusal. We assist once again at the marriage of heaven and hell. And I can't stop but go off script here for a minute because every day it seems that there is news in which um, egregious assaults and attacks and um, misuse of language uh, is supposed to be taken with a grain of salt or a sense of humor. No wonder we don't know how to decode them. The Whitmanesque cataloging of cables arcing like electricity with both its light and shock, marrying heaven and hell, reaches its pinnacle in Canto or verse 80, when the incarnated Christ, the Lord of history, comes slowly, slowly, quote, through the garden, seeking the lost disciple and weeping into the fire of the very cosmos he created. <laughs> 
In his most complex and last long poem, The Geography of Lograire, Merton puts his poetics to their ultimate challenge for both writer and reader. He has by this time embraced an almost encyclopedic knowledge from his readings in the humanities. He has encountered political and social theories of catastrophic power during his lifetime's history, including the dropping of the atomic bomb. He has engaged interreligious dialogue of first man category. That is, he, was, uh, he met the Dalai Lama in Tibet uh, as a Christian uh, visiting and learning from Buddhism. He has fallen in, if not out, of love and continued his relentless search for his vocation. In this portrayal of the fracturing of language and culture that comes with oppression, Merton points to and proposes a new world in which there are the possibilities of unity and paradise and in which language and meaning can be restored. The paradox of his poetics is that in the ruinous destruction he observes lie the seeds of restoration and paradise, the powers of the incarnation. This irony is not lost when one realizes that at this time, Merton's private world is also being shaped by the marriage of heaven and hell in his love for M, a student nurse assigned to his care when he had back surgery in Louisville in the spring of 1966. This is two years before he will die of accidental electrocution and when he was 51 years old. Sound familiar? The deeply personal and intimate love poetry that chronicles the arousal and defeat of his passions for her reflects the ultimate testing of a cosmology in which, quote, all theology is a kind of birthday in which paradise weeps in them. In the fraught condition which is their love, every beautiful night is their invention. She comes to him like a cry born of his own abyss and wild gulp and the wild gulp born of his mystery, breaking out of the untranslated heart song of his most secret planets. I dare you to try to describe falling in love in this way. <laughs> Ultimately, the poetry of Mer Merton's paradise ear arises from just such contemplative in-seeing in the Rilkean sense and, quote, implies identification in which the subject is aware of itself as having penetrated the heart of the object and being united with it. If you try, have tried to dis, uh, discuss or reveal to your intimate ones the power of an experience you have had in your life and you find that words don't convey it, you will understand what this is. Throughout the chronology of his poetics, one observes this dynamic, whether informed by Hopkins or Zen meditation. 
And I'm just going to sort of move to my conclusion now because I have overstayed my welcome. Um, but I, I will uh, just finish with this last paragraph. Merton's commitment to the incarnational and sacramental theology of his Catholic monasticism crowns his cosmology, his view of the world and the universe. That's what cosmology is. He speak, his speaker summons God's people in a, to a new world that converges in peace, as I mentioned before, in which all people shall be one. This is both the method and the outcome of his contemplative life. This vision, reflecting his interior avocation to transformational experience, meaning he wants to change and is open to it, erupts from an inner core of transcendent values that provide the centrifugal force at the center of his poetics and leaves in its wake a gravitational force that compels his readers by its prophetic ordering of a new world, a new world order that revolves in love and justice with Merton's own Christological imperative at its center. This is no easy uh, altruism. This is no uh, happy uh, uh, circle where we all uh, join hands and sing ooh la la. Having been given this generous invitation to offer some of my thoughts, perhaps even insights about Thomas Merton and Denise Levertov has allowed me to review the last 25 years of my life with immense joy and gratitude. I have lived too long and through too much redeemed sorrow to think my encounters and intersections with these thinkers and poets coincidental. In their shared correspondences with history, theology, and poetics, I see the work of providence and grace in each of them. In the meeting of their minds and personhood, I see uh, I've had the enormous pleasure and beneficence of coming to know myself more fully and to find my life in communion with God, towards which their lives and writings invite us all. And that's the end of my presentation. So uh, I want to, first of all, thank Lynn for her presentation. I'm just so in inspired by her and, uh, and her, um, uh, just uh, her strength and ability to, uh, to be with us and continue her work in writing and poetry and thinking. Um, great big thanks to Peter Cunningham. Peter is the um, uh, assistant um, at the Bernadine Center, assistant director at the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. And he's the one who has provided our technical support this evening. Alan Culp, uh, he didn't have a lot of, um, <laughs> a lot to do today, but we're grateful for you being there ready to do it, Alan, you know, when, it would, when the questions would have come. Uh, Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube. Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. And again, to all of you who have so faithfully tuned in to Tuesdays with Merton month after month and made this such a wonderful series. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars 
at merton.org slash ITMS. And there you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. Registration is now open for the August 10th webinar, which will feature poet, author, and journalist, and uh, also our new vice president of the International Thomas Merton Society, Judith Valente. She'll be speaking on why we still read and need Thomas Merton. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to see you. We look forward to seeing you in August. Thank you.